0: Welcome to a new weekly podcast series called USURF Spotlight, hosted by the United States Commission on International Religious Freedom, an independent federal advisory body. During each episode, Director of Outreach and Policy, Dwight Bashir, features a special guest to dive deeper on various topics and breaking developments that impact the universal right to freedom of religion or belief around the globe.
1: Welcome to You Serve Spotlight, I'm Dwight Bashir. Today, we're gonna discuss recent developments in Egypt. Egypt's been a key strategic US partner in the Middle East and North Africa since the late 1970s, as well as a recipient of a substantial amount of annual military and humanitarian aid among the top five countries for many years. It's also home to a growing population of over 100 million people, including a Sunni Muslim majority, and the region's single largest non-Muslim community, Coptic Orthodox Christians who represent approximately 10 to 15% of the overall population. Despite this historical diversity though, Egypt has long faced a series of religious freedom challenges, including recurring incidents of uh, violence against Coptic Christians, ongoing social and other forms of discrimination against members of that community and others. And one of the worst records In the world for the enforcement of blasphemy laws and just last week the united states joined 30 other countries at the un human rights council in geneva in condemning a range of human rights abuses in in egypt this was the first time since 2014 that egypt was the focus of a statement at the council now having said that egypt has also shown some marked signs of improvement in recent years particularly how the Egyptian government has been more openly recognizing and discussing their religious freedom challenges, and in some cases, slowly addressing them. With me today is U.S.ERF Supervisory Policy Analyst, Kurt Werthmuller, to discuss these issues and identify some of the areas of progress in Egypt. Welcome, Kurt. Thank you, Dwight, it's a pleasure to be on here today. Why don't we start uh, with Egypt's broader uh, social and religious context. Many of the country's most significant and ongoing religious freedom concerns, although not the only ones, center on the Coptic Christian community. So for our listeners who might be unfamiliar with this context, what can you tell us about the Copts and their place in Egyptian society?
0: Absolutely. This is a fairly important place to start. You know, first, it's worth noting that when we talk about the Coptic Christian community, we're really referring to one of the uh, oldest uh, existing Christian communities in the world uh, traditionally they look back to their origins to the uh, to the 40s and that is 40 uh, no no century or millennium before that um, back to one of the uh, you know first disciples of uh, of Jesus Christ. Um, as the founder of, of the, the Christian community in Egypt. So this is a very ancient uh, community that has persisted uh, here in Egypt. So, you know, this is not a uh, community that's transplanted or uh, come into the country by some other means, even historical conversion or that sort of thing. This is, you know, uh, fundamentally uh, an, a very Egyptian, indigenous uh, religious community that we're talking about here. It's also worth noting that they're one of the largest uh, single religious minorities in the Middle East. Um, you know, Egypt, as, as you mentioned earlier, is a fairly populous country to begin with. Uh, a little over 100 million people in the country at this point, point. and Copts represent somewhere between 10 and 15 percent of the population. So this is a very large community that we're that we're discussing. It is important to note that the country is also home to a number of other uh, religious communities who face. Religious freedom challenges. Uh, They include uh, non-believers, they include uh, Muslim minorities, Baha'is, and uh, a small but quickly disappearing Jewish community in uh, primarily in in Alexandria and and Cairo, among other uh, religious groups. But the sheer size of uh, Coptic Christianity really places it most prominently, right firmly in the center of many of the country's most serious religious freedom challenges.
1: Well, tell us, then what are what are some of the most significant uh, challenges that, that cops in Egypt face today? And and what are some of the challenges of these other religious communities that you that you mentioned? Absolutely. Well, you know, first and foremost,
0: uh, one of the most important uh, and uh, broad areas of challenges is in, in the form of systematic and, and ongoing discrimination. You know, for many Coptic Christians, as much as they are in many ways, integrated into Egyptian society. This is not a country in which religious minorities live in isolated ghettos, they're dispersed all throughout the country in in many different ways. And and, and yet they they really do face a lot of social and religious discrimination that can take place uh, in the workplace, in in classrooms, uh, and and of course, in uh, religious rhetoric um, uh, in different parts of the country and from different communities. But that can also be exclusionary. Uh, The reality is, is that Coptic Christians really have not had a role in uh, many of the the sectors of country, for example, uh, domestic uh, security, uh, foreign service and um, high level, high ranking positions in the government. Um, Now, there has been a little bit of change in some of those areas. We have seen a few uh, Copts begin to uh, receive appointments to governorships. Uh, to uh, higher-ranking positions within the parliament and, and that sort of thing, but there are still certainly some deficiencies in, in, in terms of their presence in, in the public sector. Um, discrimination has also taken other forms um, as well. Uh, legal uh, discrimination. We, uh, you know, I'll come back a, a little bit later to talk about sectarian violence in, in just a couple of minutes, and uh, very often uh, um, impunity legal impunity is extended to those who commit uh, sectarian violence uh, against uh, Christians and other religious minorities. And and that's a form of discrimination, of course. Um, There are um, other more nuanced ways that this discrimination can take place. A a longstanding example of this is the fact that if, uh, you know, you were to thumb through a, uh, a textbook of uh, of Egyptian history, as taught to Egyptian schoolchildren, uh, you would be very surprised to to learn later that there were there was in fact a historic presence of Christians in the country because Coptic history is completely excluded from school curriculum uh, in in the country, and um, it, you know it's as if uh, Egyptian history skipped over from the Romans right up to the time of of the uh, the earliest Islamic community in the country. So. You know, that's a little bit more nuanced and not quite as visible as things like sectarian violence, but it's there. Um, And since I just mentioned it, sectarian violence really is another important way that uh, Coptic Christians really face challenges in in the country. Now in years past, radical Islamist groups often targeted Coptic Christians with violence, uh, including church bombings, uh, shootings, uh, attacks on, on buses of Coptic pilgrims who were visiting monasteries and other holy sites those sorts of very dramatic and very violent incidents. And thankfully that sort of violence has dramatically decreased in frequency in the last year or two, but it is important to note that other forms of violence continue to persist. Most clearly in the form of anti-Christian mob attacks in in villages in upper Egypt, in other words, in rural areas, uh, occasionally in the Nile Delta, and uh, these in, incidences often take place after uh, some sort of uh, rumor has circulated about a, a Christian member of the community in these, in these generally small villages, uh, a, a local uh, Islamist uh, preacher or simply religious conservative might whip up a group of people from the, the town to go and they might uh, carry out uh, incidences of, of arson and other sorts of violence against Coptic property. And occasionally, on, on Coptic um, individuals. And uh, again, these incidences have decreased in number in in comparison to prior years, but they still do occur and they still still do occur certainly more frequently than um, than should happen. Um, but you know, one last comment um, that other communities as well, as I mentioned before, uh, non-believers, atheists, Quranists, uh, Baha'i, Shia Muslims, uh, former Muslims, and others, do often continue to face real serious social and sometimes legal repercussions for publicly voicing their beliefs. And in some cases, even for privately doing so.
1: Yeah, thanks for that comprehensive view. And I know you mentioned Baha'is, there's also Jehovah's Witnesses. I know those two groups Uh, still remain uh, banned uh, technically under a decree going back over uh, 60 years ago. But let me ask you, uh, with regard to a report that uh, we released uh, late last year, as you well know, on the enforcement of blasphemy laws around the world, that identified Egypt as one of the world's worst enforcers of those kinds of laws. Can you describe uh, for our listeners how these kinds of laws appear in the Egyptian context and how they're in. Enforcement impacts, you know, a range of uh, believers from in different contexts.
0: Absolutely. Well, one of the most uh, interesting and frankly disturbing findings of this report is uh, the way that the implementation of Egypt's um, anti-blasphemy law, which is specifically Article ninety-eight F of the criminal code, which refers to uh, insulting heavenly religions, is the way that it's termed. Uh, this this is what made Egypt one of the world's worst offenders of both blasphemy related prosecutions and social violence uh, related to uh, blasphemy concerns between 2014 and 2018. Uh, Now, I want to point out that the arrests and prosecutions of these blasphemy laws uh, in Egypt include Christians, um, uh, non-believers, Quranists, Shia Muslims, uh, but also members of the Shia, uh, I'm sorry, of the Sunni Muslim majority as well. From time to time, uh, now I, I don't believe that Egyptian authorities have recently arrested any uh, Bahais for the beliefs simply within the last couple of years. But it, it is worth noting that technically, the 1960 ban on that community strips them of any legal recognition, and in fact declares their beliefs as blasphemous. So for, for that community, and as you mentioned, Jehovah's Witnesses and, and others, that threat of prosecution under uh, blasphemy and blasphemy-related codes continues to be a real serious threat. Now, the report that Yusuf put out uh, late last year about blasphemy you know, examined a very specific period of time, but I do have to point out that these prosecutions and this enforcement continues to be a concern up to the present time. To give you a couple of examples, in June of last year, an Alexandria court uh, sentenced a man by the name of Inas Hassan to three years in prison for managing a Facebook page that promoted atheism under this uh, blasphemy code. Uh, While Rida Rahman, a teacher at El azhar Institute in Sharqai governorate, was also arrested in, in, in August of last year for promoting Quranism. Um, again, under these blasphemy codes. Um, one other case that I'd like to note, uh, Dwight, to illustrate the, the human cost of blasphemy laws, and that's one case that Yusuf has been following for some time. In December 2018, a court in Minya convicted a Coptic Christian man by the name of Abdul Adil on blasphemy charges over a Facebook post that they claimed had made some sort of comparison between Jesus and the prophet Muhammad. Now I've never been able to track down a screen grab or some other direct evidence of the post itself, but it's been described to me as relatively innocuous. And and yet the mere idea of such a comparison appears to have been enough to first attract the attention of religious conservatives in Abdu's village, spark a violent anti-Christian mob attack on Coptic properties there, and to lead Egyptian prosecutors to charge him on these blasphemy charges. Now, uh, to this day, Abdu remains in prison, and to add insult to injury, the last I was informed of his status was that he had been inexplicably moved at some point to a prison facility way down in the New Valley Governorate, uh, far from his uh, you know, relatively poor family in Minya Governorate. And so this is just one illustration of the way that these blasphemy laws can really uh, destroy a person's life, not just uh, become a matter of harassment or inconvenience. But these have real serious ramifications for individuals and communities who are threatened under these blasphemy laws.
1: Well, it sounds to me as if there's still a lot of challenges, as you as, as you've outlined, but. But let me now get to what I mentioned in the intro, some of the positives. Uh, we've seen some positive developments in recent years, uh, particularly in how Egypt, the government in particular, recognizes debates, you know, addresses uh, some of these questions of freedom of religion and belief you know, publicly. There was a time years ago, as you well know, that there wouldn't have been these kinds of discussion allowed in public, and there would be, you know, the ire of the authorities right away. Uh, but tell us, what have been some of the, the concrete improvements, and what do you hope to see continue in the short and longer term?
0: This is, you know, important to recognize, of course, Dwight, and, and USURF sort of has recognized and has noted this, particularly over the last couple of years. That there has indeed been a market shift in the way that the Egyptian government recognizes and discusses religious freedom challenges. I mean, as you mentioned in years past to be specific under the Mubarak presidency and even before that, of course, the Egyptian government generally refused to even recognize that there was any manifestation of discrimination or or, or other sorts of challenges that faced uh, non-Muslims in the country. And in particular, the Coptic Christian minority and other religious minorities. Um, they typically blamed any sorts of sectarian issues on uh, terrorists uh, or people with mental illness. This was a very co- common charge in those days, but but simply didn't acknowledge that there was any any issue to be, to be dealt with at all. And so that has certainly changed. the The administration of Egyptian President uh, Sisi has certainly changed the nature of this of this uh, dialogue, this discourse. It's publicly acknowledged that there are related challenges in the country, and it has made some incremental systematic changes, such as the church building law of 2016, uh, which we as a commission have recognized as an important step, while in fact pointing out some of its shortcomings. Um, The president's non annual, uh, now annual tradition, I should say, uh, of attending Coptic Mass and even uh, doing some individual uh, events such as presiding over the opening of a large Coptic Orthodox cathedral in, in early 2019 are, are symbolic, of course, but they are important in that symbolism. They do represent a shift, again, in the way that the Egyptian government is looking to these, these questions of religious diversity and pluralism in the country. But this isn't just a matter of the president, uh, again, to acknowledge this these improvements, other prominent Egyptian leaders, either in or closely associated with the Egyptian government, have also contributed to this shift. Uh, fairly recently, for example, the Grand Sheikh of Al Azhar, Ahmed tayyib made a public declaration that terms once applied to non Muslims in Islamic jurisprudence, such as Ahl Dimma or people of the covenant. And uh, the jizya, which was a, a traditional poll tax on non-Muslim men, should now be considered only as historical concepts whose usefulness in the present age ha- has ended. That may sound simply philosophical or legal in nature, but setting aside these terms that use, really used to be used to um, keep non-Muslims as second-class citizens, you know, setting these aside is no longer directly relevant to modern Egyptian society is an important recognition or important statement. Uh, It's also worth noting that the ministry of education just earlier this year announced that it would be introducing uh, factual instruction on both Christianity and Judaism alongside of Islam as part of a new curriculum to foster mutual understanding and what it called shared values. Um, And, you know, as I mentioned before, while Yusuf acknowledges these modest changes, we do have to recognize that Egypt still has a long way to go in terms of truly establishing religious freedom in the country. Not just for Coptic Christians, as important and prominent as they are, but for the Muslim majority and for smaller Muslim and non-Muslim communities as well. You know, frankly, do I given that we have continued to recommend Egypt for the State Department's special watch list. Uh, We clearly maintain those serious concerns. Just to give you one quick example, I mentioned before the church building law of 2016, which created for the first time a framework by which informal churches and related properties could apply for registration. This was an important step, and we did recognize that, but it's also important to note that uh, we have criticized the very slow pace of implementing this registration process and we have also criticized uh the, the number of closures of churches that were awaiting approval under this registration system uh due to localized sectarian uh violence. Uh so you know this is a really good example of the, the ways in which the Egyptian government have made some progress, but implementing that progress uh has been a, a concern in, in, in some instances.
1: Well, it certainly sounds like there's a lot going on and we do hope that egypt the pushes forward as you said they sit on our special uh, recommendation for that special watch list um, and uh, and i think uh, you know we certainly have a series of recommendations but we'll have to leave it right here and what i'll say is to, to look at those policy recommendations on Egypt in more detail, you can always see those on our website at www.usurf.gov, as well as our latest findings, of which Kurt uh, touched on a number of those. I want to thank our USURF Supervisory Policy Analyst, Kurt Worthmuller for joining us today, sharing these latest updates on the situation. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you next time on USURF Spotlight. learn more about USURF
0: and about global religious freedom concerns, visit usurf.gov. That's U-S-C-I-R-F gov. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at U-S-C-I-R-F. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week for another USURF Spotlight.